0: Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it's the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower coming to America. And there's been an incredible partnership between FamilySearch.org and the New England Historic Genealogical Society to digitize all the applications to the General Society of Mayflower Descendants over the years. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'm going to be talking with Don LeClaire from NEHGS about this three-year project that's finally available for you to take advantage of. Plus, we're going to talk about railroad records. There are more of them out there than you think with Melanie McComb. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And welcome to the weekend, and welcome to America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Great to have you along, genies. We've got a couple of great guests from the New England Historic Genealogical Society at AmericanAncestors.org today. It's an all-NEHGS show today. First of all, coming up in about 10 minutes or so, uh, Don LeClaire is going to join us, and he's going to be talking about a great new database project that NEHGS has been doing with FamilySearch.org, and this is going to allow you to actually get into the applications for membership in the Mayflower. Society, the Mayflower Descendants Society, and this can really help you find out if you have ancestry that was on the Mayflower. Then, after Dawn, we got Melanie McComb joining us once again. She's going to talk about records on the railroad, and so many of us have ancestors who are tied with that. My wife's grandfather worked on the railroad, so I'm looking forward to hearing what Melanie has to say. And, of course, David Allen Lambert, he's always present for our family histoire news right now. And then, of course, later in the show for Ask Us Anything. Hey, David, you are back in Boston. What's going on there?
1: I'm sitting in my office for the first time since March. I'm delighted to be here. I had some work that I have to do, so I will be here on a day that we're closed to the public so I can get some work done for the upcoming year.
0: Sweet. Well, it's great to have you back. Boy, there's a lot of things happening right now. First of all, as we know, Ancestry, a couple of weeks ago, they updated their ethnicity report. Now Family Tree DNA has done the same. And of course, we get the Mm -hmm. usual reaction of, well, was it wrong before? Was it, you know? (laughs) No, 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 no. It's just getting improved. It's getting to the point where you can narrow down where your people were from a little more easily. And it'll change again in six months. So just uh, relax and enjoy it. Fold 3, they've come up with a new data database. It's a collection of unit histories and photos and journals from Phan Rang Air Base in Vietnam. And this is great to see. They're finally starting to move into the Vietnam era. We haven't seen a whole lot of that up to this point. And then, David, the oldest Roman body armor ever found Mm -hmm. has been discovered in Germany, and it dates back to 9 AD. How cool is that?
1: Well, I don't think I want to wear it now. I don't think it's going to protect you well. It's probably pretty rusted.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would think that's true.
1: Well, speaking of veterans, on Family History on News, we lower our flag to remember another Tuskegee Airman. Unfortunately, we have lost yet another gentleman. He was 95 years old, Major George W. Biggs from Arizona. And Fish, he enlisted when he was 18 in 1943. And Major Biggs didn't only serve in the Second World War. He also served in Korea and in Vietnam flying airplanes, all the way through to the 1970s.
0: Man, we are uh, losing a lot of the Tuskegee guys, not many of them left.
1: Well, you know, I've talked to you before about the Titanic. So, you know, of course, the Titanic was discovered back in 1986 by Bob Ballard, and basically they were going to leave it alone. It was not going to be touched. That's changed a little bit, and the court order has changed it even more so. So now they're actually going to cut into the Titanic and take out the Marconi device. Of course, many people know the Titanic sent out a distress signal. They're hoping to find whatever is left of that Marconi machine and bring it to the surface.
2: Wow, that'd
0: be some piece of history to have on display for people to see.
1: I think so, and the word that it's going to get lost, so that's why they're doing it. They're not looking for treasure, per se, more than trying to get find answers. I'll tell you, the story on ExtremeGenes.com is amazing and also heart-wrenching. The newly discovered logbook of a slave ship, the Mary that departed Africa in 1796 with 142 enslaved men, women, and children on board.
0: Oh, and it's quite a log, too. And they get into the details about the, the brutal treatment of these people. And it was one of the officers underneath the captain that kept it. And it's considered a very rare journal that's out there. You can read all about it and find out where you can see it online at ExtremeGenes.com.
1: I'll tell you, sibling rivalry can be a problem. But how about if you had 600 half-siblings? This is what's going on because of the... <laughs> I guess extra work from uh, a doctor in the 1940s who had a fertility clinic. This is a fertility clinic that was run by Dr. Mary Barton and her husband, Bertold Wisner. Well, Bertold was obviously uh, quite involved in the company because he 600 <laughs> people matched by DNA. Now, here's something to just think about for a second. If you have 600 children that are born in the 1940s, that could be great-grandparents now. Is Bertolt Weisner the most prolific person who lived in the 20th century for descendants?
0: You would have to think something like that, right?
1: It has to be thousands of people that are descendants. Well,
0: if you you just attribute uh, two children to each of the uh 600 children that he may have fathered, that's that's 1,200 grandchildren, and then you three children for each one of those. Grandchildren. And three, you got thirty-six hundred <laughs> great-grandchildren, and then you add them all together, and you're somewhere close to five thousand, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's unbelievable, <laughs> uh, but you just never know what you're going to find out on ExtremeGenes.com, folks. So you can pick yourself off the floor. And be thankful you don't have 600 relatives that you're taking car trips with right. at the same time.
0: Or getting um, together with at Christmas time in your kitchen. <laughs> I mean, Holy cow. And you know, you hear this story. This is not a, an uncommon theme, is it, no. Dave, when it comes to fertility clinics? It seems to be the way a lot of them did it back then. <laughs> I'll
1: tell you, you just never know what you're going to learn because of DNA.
0: <laughs> you, you never know what you're going to learn because of DNA. And obviously, this was never expected to be revealed and now it has and congratulations it's a girl it's a boy it's a girl it's a girl it's a boy it's a girl it's a boy 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 girl boy and a girl and a boy and a girl and a boy
1: Uh, well that's about all i have to shock people with from family history news this week Shock and inform and entertain
0: all right dave thanks yeah you'll be back for ask us anything later on in the show Well, it's been 400 years since the Mayflower showed up on our shores, and who would have thought we're not having any celebrations this year? There's no parties, no gathering in Plymouth, but we are gathering all the applications and all kinds of data for you to discover if you are a Mayflower descendant. Hi, it's Fisher, and uh, my guest today is from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. He is Don LeClaire, and uh, Don is an Associate Director of Database Searches and Systems and uh, Don, it's great to have you on the show. You guys have an amazing project going here and what a partnership of superstars.
2: Oh, thanks, Scott. It's great to be on the show. So, yeah, we've been working closely with the General Society of Mayflower Designs and Family Search for the last three years on this project to digitize and make available the Mayflower applications and the trees based on that information as well.
0: Now, there's got to be millions of names in these applications because you've got like six figures worth of applications, right?
2: Yeah, there's a little over 100,000 applications that are out there. I think the pages of documentation that came with it is around 1.4 million. It's just unbelievably large. Wow. So, as somebody described it, this is the most studied group of people on the planet Earth. And uh, <laughs> it's great to be able to free that information up and start making it more accessible for folks, especially in light of the 40th anniversary.
0: It's funny you say that. I only discovered my connection to the Mayflower like 10 years ago. And so I read the story, and it was now my story, which was very exciting, very interesting, because I hadn't really examined it that closely. But now that I knew I was among the descendants, I'm looking at it, and it was like, okay, 51 survivors in the winter. It was something like 51, 52, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, but basically half the uh, passengers didn't make it through that first winter. So.
0: Yeah. So I'm living on a cul de sac, and I'm kind of counting how many people are in each household there, and there's like 10 houses. And I'm thinking, okay. It's just about 51, 52 people, almost exactly. If we took a picture of everybody on our street collected together, that's the number of people who survived the first winter, and not even all of them have descendants living today.
2: That's true. That's true. So uh, it's been a pretty hardy group (laughs) to make it through that.
0: But the guess is something like 30 million descendants from these people. That's the thing that blows my mind.
2: Yeah, and they're they're all around the world. That's a pretty amazing story from both a genealogy perspective and also history. They made it through.
0: Yes, they did. And, and flourished. Incredible. And 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 I would imagine for you being involved in this project, you must be a, a descendant as well.
2: I am indeed. So, yes, uh, we've actually joined the society last year. So I'm a descendant of John Alden and had that one validated. And I've got a couple of other suspects, but I haven't gone (laughs) through the process to have them fully uh, validated yet.
0: Well, we should mention that the site to check out everything that American Ancestors has on the Mayflower, you go to mayflower.americanancestors.org. And you'll find all kinds of databases there. So if you're interested in finding out, number one, if you're a Mayflower descendant, or number two, joining the General Society, I mean, everything is right there. How many databases are there here, Don?
2: We probably have at least a dozen on that page. I think that there's a variety of things that are really useful, especially when you get back into the colonial era. But I think the two most valuable databases is one called the Mayflower Family Fifth Generation Descendants, this one is based on the silver books and the fifth generation and their children. So it's really the fifth and sixth generation that are included. So if you're looking to tie yourself back to the Mayflower, you can use that database. So if you could get tie in there, then you're in, as we would say, because that, you found your link.
0: Right. That's very helpful. And that's why people typically only have to research back to the uh, early to mid 1700s because the first five generations are already done. And that would include, by the way, the passenger and the Mayflower, right? That's the first generation.
2: Yeah, right. The first generation. We start from one with the passenger and then go from there. So that's been really helpful. But I think the new project we just talked about at the beginning here is this project to digitize the applications and make that information available. And that's going to get you down to generations 11, even 13. And there's also a link to that database which is the General Society of Mayflower Descendants membership applications. And those are the ones we're taking the full set of applications that have been sent into the Mayflower Society and building out uh, trees and indexing those genealogy forms from the applications and putting that all online.
0: And I imagine there's somebody out there thinking, wait a minute, I- I'm in the Mayflower Society. I sent in an application. Are, are you going to reveal my mother's maiden name, my full name, my birth date? What's the privacy situation here? How have you protected it?
2: Yes, yeah, we're being really careful about privacy, and certainly we don't want to create any problems for anybody. So the rule we have is uh, no one can be in, included in any of this if they were born after the year 1919. So the cutoff date is January 1st, 1920, and uh, only people that were born before that or anybody mentioned on an application that was born after that, then we don't put that application up. But that's still a pretty healthy number of people that we can share the information on.
0: Sure. You only really have to worry about it if you're 106, right?
2: If you're 106, then then maybe you have to be a little more careful. (laughs) Yeah, we've got to be a little more careful there. And just let us know. We'll take your application down if you're 106 and you're up there.
0: So have the uh, different organizations taken on different portions of this project? And what can we get from each one?
2: Yeah, sure. From the project side itself, we really built the information from two sources. One of those sources is the Mayflower Silver Books, and American Ancestors went through the process of extracting and and indexing all of the information from the Silver Books. And then FamilySearch took the process of digitizing all of the applications and then indexing generations six and beyond from those applications. The reasoning being, rather than have us go through 100,000 applications and re-index those first five generations 100,000 times, it would be a lot more efficient to merge these two things together. So that's how we built it. So that's how we built the raw data. Now what we deliver is two different things that are both really valuable. So one of those are trees based on the descendants of the Mayflower passengers, and those are available on Family Search with their genealogies, and they're partially available now. When the whole project's complete, they'll all be available online at FamilySearch. And on American Ancestors, we're making those trees available by passenger on our tool, which is called American Ancestries, and you'll be able to get to that uh, from the American Ancestors website. And then the second delivery that we have here at American Ancestors is the actual application forms themselves for those people that were born before 1920. And that's roughly 40% of the applications will be online where the, the applicant was born before 1920, and then we can have their, their actual form online as well as having the data from their form.
0: So when did the General Society start taking memberships?
2: I should know that off the top of my head. I believe it's about 1878. It was in the late
0: 1800s. Okay. So basically, there's about two generations of applications to join the society, you know, from 1920 back to 1878, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a really large number. I think that we have something on the order of 30 some odd thousand uh, based on the families we've done so far. So oh wow. That's that's a lot of applications.
0: That is a <laughs> that is a lot of applications. And and so where's the 100,000 number come from?
2: So 100,000 number is all of the applications up to the present time. So obviously given those privacy rules, we can't put all of the applications online. But we can do is take advantage of the opportunity for people like you and I who have applied to the Maylar society recently. In my case, my grandfather from my application and beyond would be available in these trees because he was born before 1920. I see. Now, whereas myself and my father are born afterwards, so my application won't be online, but the information from my application, at least for those people that qualify, will be. Got online. it. I mean,
0: this is so easy. I mean, I remember signing up for this thing, and I was fortunate because I'd already documented all of my generations, so it was a it was a snap. But I know there are many people who will apply over and over and over again because they get stuck in one particular place, but this could be enormously helpful in removing a lot of those barriers for anybody who wants to join the General Society of Mayflower Descendants. So we can go to family search. We can see the trees. We can also see trees at American Ancestors, right? American Ancest trees. And what about on the uh, General Society site itself?
2: The General Society is not putting these uh, online directly. Okay. But they actually are taking advantage of it too, because they're trying to streamline the process. As you may be fully aware, with this being the 400th anniversary, they've been sort of deluged with the applications and they're looking to really improve the processing time and be able to do their due diligence better. So they're actually taking advantage of having all of the applications in the digital form so people don't have to go into the boxes in society to go reach out and double check other applications.
0: Isn't that great?
2: <laughs> because as you may know, you only have to prove your ancestry back to the closest of somebody else's application. So like you were saying, if somebody else in your the last few generations has already applied, you only have to document from yourself to that last person.
0: So. Sure. To like the, your great grandfather or your grandmother or something like that. It'd be great. Well, this is yeah. uh, an exciting project here, Don.
2: Yes, it's been a really exciting thing. I've been working on this for the last two or three years, and uh, we've been really excited to get to the point where now we can make this stuff available to people, because certainly what we've seen here at American Ancestors, and I think in general, is that there's just a, a lot of interest in your ancestry back to the Mayflower, and this should make it much easier for people who would like to either just find out or definitely want to apply to shorten that process and not have to go back to you know the mid 1700s sure. to go document there.
0: And I should mention also, it's not entirely finished yet. It's just like what, 90% done?
2: And maybe more like 80%. Okay, 80%. <laughs> it's, it's pretty close. I mean, we, <laughs> we have, in our case, we have 17 of the families are completely done and available online. Uh, within a week or two, we'll have that up to 19. So we're, we're getting down to just the last few families. And we're looking to have that done before the end of this year.
0: What is that number? 37,
2: 38? No, it's actually only about 24.
0: 24 families, they're the only ones that have living descendants at this time.
2: Yeah, and that actually includes Moses Fletcher, who is kind of an unusual situation and that none of his family ever came. He came, but he had family he left behind in Holland. So he has uh, some number of descendants that are pretty much mostly all in Europe.
0: Oh, wow. So you
2: take him aside, there's only really 23 families that came here and had descendants living in North America.
0: That's at this time. So, He's Don LeClaire with American Ancestors. Thanks so much for coming on, Don. And uh, congratulations. This has been going on, what, for three years now? And it's, it's great
2: to finally be able
0: to see the fruit of your labors.
2: Thanks for having me on. And it has been a great project. So we're looking forward to people taking a look.
0: It is all NEHGS today, the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org, one of our great partners. And on the line with me today for Extreme Genes is my good friend, Melanie McComb. And Mel, you, sure? you and I have been talking lately about the railroad records because you've done a recent talk on this subject. And I think it's I fascinating, did, yeah. especially for people with ancestry from the Midwest, maybe even live there now. There are a lot of people who worked on the railroad. And where are those records
3: and that's a great question and so it depends it depends on which line you're looking into but for the most part a lot of the different lines especially in the midwest are coming online on sites like ancestry or on family search or they might even be at a local archives or even a railroad historical society some of those actually exist for some of the lines that are still out there so you may even have more of a an archivist that's very familiar with that railroad which can be really helpful to see what other records are out there
0: you know i think this is one of those occupations where all kinds of stories come down the line right my my dad had a first cousin who was decapitated He was in between two cars, uncoupling them, I guess, manually. Mm -hmm. And then he peeked around the side just at the wrong moment as another train came by. It was just awful. He was only in his 40s, back in the 1940s. Then my wife's grandfather worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad, said he never missed a day of work in 45 years. (laughs) And so, you know, the stories of the railroad, they just go on and on.
3: They do. You're right. And, And unfortunately, sometimes they lead to those grisly deaths where you really start to find out what actually happened. Happened to them. But you're right. I think you have to understand a lot of the railroad history about how dangerous it really was until they really put more automation in place, putting up all the signals, even just the automatic air brakes. That was a big patent just to make sure that the trains would actually stop in time so that they wouldn't just kind of ram into another train or a car.
0: I was actually in a train wreck back when I was 18 years old, and that was The same thing you're talking about, the engineer missed a signal, he was distracted by Mm -hmm. something, and as we came into the station, he was only going like 15 miles an hour, but another train was stopped there. And having missed the signal, he tried to stop it, but as you know, you can't slow down a train. And even No,
3: it, no, you, you can. not And then you absorb the energy of also the other train. Yeah. So it's yeah. so you're going a lot faster than that 15 miles per hour. It makes you think of the math problems we used to solve back in the day.
0: The momentum. That's right. And so this train plowed into the back of this other train, killed a guy. There were 40 some odd hospitalizations, 105 people injured. I was thrown over the top of the seat that the guy in oh front of me God. was sitting in. And there were some kids sitting across from me. And uh, one went flying into the other because they had arranged the seats so they were facing each other it was a real disaster oh. this was in uh, Mount Vernon New York in 1973 but you never forget anything like that and I've still found online various photographs of it and accounts of it and the inquiry of what happened and know I still remember that day it was amazing
3: and you're right those days we always remember like even at the local train station near me they have a little plaque made up for when they had a train crash they're always commemorating who was lost in that it's just usually it's a huge tragedy whenever those happen it's yeah. never really just one or two people was hurt it's awful so
0: I, what got you into researching the railroad sources
3: I started digging more into some of my ancestors and my cousins and just trying to understand more about what their occupation was like. I I felt that there's a lot more that we can explore when we dig into specific occupations. So I'm hoping that over time, I'll have almost like a series of different occupations that we'll look into. So like maybe like uh, the fire department, police or something. I feel like that adds another element to your ancestor's story because you're finding out what it was like at that time. And there's more records that do survive, it's just a matter of finding out where they are getting access to them
0: well if you consider we sleep eight hours a day on average and that would mean 56 hours a week right we're in bed and that only leaves Mm -hmm. another what 112 hours and at least 40 of them are involved working who knows how much time commuting and (laughs) that type of thing it's a big part of (laughs) anybody's life story is what they did and how they did it
3: yeah. And depending on your family member, if they had a job, they might have been doing that job for life. So yep. you know, they picked a career and then they stuck with it and then they hopefully got their pension at the end, which brings me to a good segue here because railroad employees could apply for pension benefits, especially when we get into after the 1930s, when we actually have a national retirement board pension that was put in place where former employees could, after a certain number of years of service, apply for their pension. And this would be in lieu of getting a Social Security benefit.
0: It's funny you mention that because my wife's grandfather, as an old man, he thought he was rich because he had this retirement. And this was just something that wasn't available in his parents' generation.
3: That's right. Maybe they would see some benefits if they were with a railroad fraternity organization. They would usually provide things like insurance, et cetera. But you're right. I mean, the pension was not always a guarantee uh, prior to that. So you had to really save up your wages. These retirement board records really give you really good insight into them. And some of the ones I found, they really talk a lot more about the family, who they married, including all their marriages, all their children. So you really start to open up a lot of the genealogy portion of it in what we would think would be a pretty typical records for just getting paid out for retirement.
0: And those are on Ancestry and Family Search.
3: Uh, there's an Ancestry index that you can search to see if your railroad family member is in there, and then the records can be obtained from the National Archives in Atlanta when they reopen.
0: Ah, yes, when they reopen. What right. other, what, what other <laughs> but, kind of records
3: are out there? Uh, Really depending on the railroad line, there could be employee personnel files, sometimes there could be multiple pages of someone's file talking about their history in the railroad, including what promotions they had. If they had any demerits issued in case they maybe forgot to do something, like clean something on the railroad or file some paperwork, also wage increases, some of these might only be like abstracts too. So you might get like a summary of information saying, okay, they worked for like the copper shop. I had an example in my lecture where the guy was only in there for under a year and then he was laid off. But it gave you an idea that, okay, in that year, this is what he was doing at the time and here was what he was getting paid and the name of the railroad he worked for.
0: That's incredible. Now where do you obtain those?
3: So you can find those on Ancestry and FamilySearch. Usually you can just go into the catalog and search on railroad to see what exists and there's also a number of railroad historical society directories so, you can actually see what libraries and universities have additional records as well. Hmm. So, in some cases, there might be more of a specific organization that's set up, though. Like, for example, in Boston, there actually is, for the, uh, I think it's the Boston Line Service Company, they actually have their own archives. So, you can actually make an appointment to go out to see what records they have.
0: So, these employee files, then, when you talk about Ancestry and Family Search, are those indexes for them and then you have to write for them?
3: A lot of the ones in Ancestry and Family Search are the actual digitized scans of the records so what they have up there is probably all they have survived so which, yeah exactly. Which
0: railroads does that cover
3: so on ancestry we have the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad the Utah select Union Pacific Railroad California for Kansas there is the Ashton Topeka and Santa Fe Railway and the Northern Pacific Railway Company And on FamilySearch, they also have the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe railroad records. Ancestry goes out to 1935, Uh, FamilySearch goes out to 1950, and they also have the Southern Pacific Railroad employee record cards.
0: Wow, and what about the Pennsylvania Railroad?
3: So a lot of the Pennsylvania Railroad records can be found at the Pennsylvania State Archives. So they have records that go back, looks like more like 20th century records, I would say, but they actually have quite a large collection of the enrollment cards that were involved in addition to other collections on microfilm related to the railroad.
0: So it sounds like really there are records all over the place, as you say, and it sounds like a lot of detail potentially waiting for us. How fun is that?
3: Absolutely. So a lot of fun, I think, to get into once we can start to see more of our libraries and universities open, definitely make an appointment to check out some of these records. I think seeing what's online first will give you an idea of what else you could find out there. And you can even just simply see if you have anybody involved with the railroad just by looking at records like census records. There are even railroad directories that you can find online on sites like archive.org or HathiTrust.
0: She's Melanie McComb, genealogist for the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Thank you much, Melanie, and we'll talk to you again soon.
3: All right. Thank you for having me.
0: And coming up next, David Allen Lambert returns for Ask Us Anything. David, uh, this is a note from Nancy Smithson from Shreveport, Louisiana. She says, guys, I've got an ancestor who came to Boston in 1635, and the ship came out of Bristol, England. But I can't find any hint of my ancestor in the records there. What should I do next? Good question. David, you're neck of the woods. What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's typical. Actually, in the 17th century, a lot of people, even early genealogists, would put down that where the ship embarked from was where their ancestor came from. But as we know now, as more genealogy is being uncovered, these ports like Bristol or Southampton or London were just places they left from, not necessarily where they lived. So you need to kind of push back even sometimes dozens or a hundred or so miles and look at all the places that your ancestor possibly could be from by where the names are situated, or maybe there's even a clue in New England that points it back. People came over together with other family members, so maybe somebody on that vessel is known to be from, say, Cheshire, England, or from East Anglia. Some of the manifests for the vessels or the permission to embark, these records were compiled in the 19th century by John Camden Houghton. There's a very long title to a book called The Original List of Persons of Quality. Now people will say, well, my ancestors not in the they were farmers, but then it goes on on the title to continue, which is quite humorous actually. Immigrants, religious exiles, political rebels, Serving men sold for a term of years, apprentices, children stolen, maidens pressed, and others who went from Great Britain to the American plantation, 1600 to
0: 1700. Wow. <laughs> That's a long That's list.
1: A That's why they call the original list of persons of quality and stop there, I should say. Dot, dot, dot. But that book, obviously, you can Google search. You can find it on Happy Trust or archive.org and just peruse it yourself. There's not a lot of surviving 17th century manifests or embarkation list that you can turn to. So when you can find one, you know what port they're planning to embark from. It is a clue, maybe putting you into learning more about the people they come over with. Uh, so if your ancestor is John Smith, maybe the Thomas Crenmore that came over his origins have been found because it's a less common name, and maybe they traveled together. A lot of people traveled with clergy when they were fleeing for religious freedom in the New World. So you can often find connections like that. There may be a servant they're paying the passage for, and that person's traceable. Found them on family search. You found the baptism for... Zacchaeus Howard in 1608 or something like
0: that. You know, Nancy, trying to get your ancestor across the pond is uh, one of the more difficult things to do in genealogy. It takes a lot of work sometimes. The good news is, is that there are so many records now being gathered from churches throughout the British Isles and Northern and Western Europe, that so many of these things can simply be found in databases now. Sometimes it's just a matter of trying to narrow down exactly which one of these people by the same name might be your person of that name. And what David's talking about of gathering people around them, kind of the fan method here, can be very useful in figuring out, okay, maybe this is the one that I'm trying to find, and then you can work on records across the pond.
1: I totally agree with that. There is so much out there, but I like to use the analogy that genealogy is wet cement. We're always discovering new things. Maybe the work that Bob Anderson did on the Great Migration, or it might be somebody that uncovers probate in England that gives a new clue of someone back in the New World.
0: Always getting better. Thank you, Nancy, for the email. Uh, Dave, this question is from Reggie Whitman in Tacoma, Washington, and he says, "Uh, Fish and Dave, I'm trying to identify my grandfather's parents who came to the Midwest on the orphan train. My ethnicity results suggest he may have been Scottish, but now the numbers are changing again. How does this help me, Reggie? (laughs) Okay, uh, let's just stop right there for a minute. First yeah. of all, mm-hmm. you know, I always like to tell people that the ethnicity results are basically the things that lure you into DNA research. And uh, it, it's nice to know what your background is, and it can be a clue to where your ancestors came from. But it's not necessarily useful to you in identifying people unless you find that when you locate the identity of who you're looking for, they have nothing to do with Scottish ancestry. So that can help you in that way. But in terms of identifying people, the most important thing in your DNA results are your matches, and the most Mm -hmm. important tool, especially on Ancestry and really on all the major DNA sites, is shared matches or whatever the equivalent is on all the other sites.
1: And that's true. In fact, over the weekend, I had gone through and pulled out a batch of new matches that I had on Ancestry and actually discovered that one of the matches, well, actually four of them, may allude to the maiden name of a fourth great grandmother who I never knew who she was. And it gives a clue to where she came from in Dorset, England, who her parents are. So I've got a lot more digging to do, but it's not from paper this time. It's from a DNA clue.
0: Yeah. DNA can do things that paper often can't and and at least lead you to a paper trail or confirm a paper trail. The DNA matches. I've run into so many people, Dave, and maybe you've had this experience too, that say, well, I don't have any matches. They didn't look beyond the ethnicity report because that was the thing that they initially were taking the test for because that's what the advertisements ask you to do, right? So they look at the ethnicity. They don't notice the matches. They don't realize that this is so important. and. I guess the best way to explain it is to say, if you can see who you match up to, it's kind of like attending a reunion of maybe a side of the family you're not even familiar with, and you come to realize, oh, okay, I know who these people are. Oh, and these people are matched to them and to me as well, so they must come from the same side of the family, and that's the significance of the matches, so... Of course, there's so many ways to learn about genetic genealogy. This is how the criminals are being found, CeCe Moore and her group, and so many other genetic genealogists right now solving cold cases. There's no reason you can't do the same.
1: And, you know, I'll tell you, there's just so much out there that you can do. And if you're lucky enough to have half-siblings, hopefully not 600 of them like I, <laughs> we talked about in the show today. But for me, I have uh, two half-sisters, and I have a half-brother, both from my mom's side and my dad's side. So I can almost divide up and see what mom and dad gave me without having my parents alive to do their DNA.
0: That's right. There's so many things you can do with this. So, Reggie, take a look at your matches and uh, see what you can find there. If you've got an Ancestry DNA test, use through lines and start seeing what that reveals to you. Just play with it, and you'll be able to figure it out very easily, I'm sure. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can always email us at askusanything@extremegenes.com. at David, great to talk to you again.
1: Always a pleasure, my friend. Talk to you soon.
0: And that's our show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.